Well, good morning and welcome to uh, Super Bowl Sunday. So uh, I want to find out who's in the house here this morning. Uh, where are my Patriot fans this morning? Raise your hand, Patriot fans. Um, sorry to see, see that. How about, where, where, are my, uh, where are my Seahawk backers? So, a few of you here. How many people here? Go Browns. Go, go Browns, yeah. <laughs> talk about, we're going to talk about hopelessness today. So, uh, that, 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 that's great. That's great. Uh, great tie into that. But how many people here, you don't really care. You're just hoping for some good food and good commercials. Raise your hand tonight. <laughs> That's what, that's, that's what I thought. I, I thought that'd probably be the, the majority of us here this morning. And I, I'm not really rooting for any team tonight. I don't have a dog in the fight, or I, I'm not pulling for anybody. But uh, as, I was, as Super Bowl was approaching, I found myself kind of following along a little bit with the Seahawks storyline. And maybe it has something to do with the inflated story about deflated footballs of the Patriots. Uh, I, I don't know. But, uh, but I found myself kind of following along with the Seahawks. And, and if you know anything about how the Seahawks got to the Super Bowl, some call it the greatest comeback in football history. Two weeks ago, I remember watching some of the Packers-Seahawks game, and I left for the youth center, and I thought to myself, this is over. The Packers are going to win. The Seahawks had a nice run. It's, it's over for them. And then all of a sudden, this miraculous comeback, and, and they win, and, uh, and they get to go to the, to the Super Bowl. Well, uh, and, and these people call it the greatest comeback of all time. Well, no disrespect to the Seahawks this morning. I want to talk about the most miraculous comeback of all time. And last week, you know, we, we were in Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We were looking at verses 21 to 25, and we talked last week that all mankind is lost in sin. We're all totally depraved. Our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, our motives, our words, they're all corrupted by the sickness of sin. We are all totally depraved. We're lost in our sin because we can't perfectly play by God's rules. We, we can't follow his laws. We can't earn our, our salvation or our righteousness. And, and so last week we, uh, we said that, but God, knowing our situation was hopeless, graciously sent Jesus Christ to the cross to complete the miracle of justification. To complete this miracle that we were talking about, that we can only achieve victory over sin by placing our faith and trust in Jesus. And, and we said, we talked about the miracle of justification. And in Romans 3.21, it says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And last week we said rebellious sinners can be made right with the holy God only through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, to justify is to declare righteous. And Paul makes it clear here in Romans 3 that we are justified by faith and not by any kind of works. So this is the great exchange of justification, the imputation of our sin to Christ 
and God's righteousness to us. And Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, when, said, when he said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. So when we put our faith in Jesus, God graciously justifies us. He declares us righteous, as righteous as Jesus himself, and he treats us like we've never committed any sin. That's the miracle of justification. The divine decree of God deciding to forgive our sins and declare us righteous in his sight because of the cross of Christ. And that's the miracle that we talked about last week. The miracle of justification. And so this morning, I want to pick up where we left off and talk a little bit about the method of justification. And I want to talk a little bit more about Christ's atoning sacrifice. Our justification is possible because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Again, in verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God presented Christ as this sacrifice of atonement. God the Father presented Jesus in the person uh, and publicly to accomplish his purpose. And as Paul is talking about, uh, what he's talking about here in Romans 3.25, he's describing the theological term of penal substitutionary atonement. And I know what you're thinking. What did you just say? Uh, And that that sounds like a lot of confusing words, but you know what? Those words, this concept is critical to our Christian faith. It's essential to our Christian faith. And this, this biblical doctrine, it's clearly communicated through Scripture. And one of the first theologians ever to kind of state this was John Calvin, when he, and he stated kind of in three different statements this idea of, of penal substitutionary atonement. He said this, man is guilty of sin. He said the punishment of sin is death. And he said Christ died in our place and received our punishment so we can be forgiven. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now, how many people here have ever played the game of charades? And if you've ever played the game of charades, you know there's two kinds of people that play charades. Either they're really good at it, or they're not really good at it. I mean, come on, you know that. And if you've ever played charades, maybe you've gotten a phrase that it was just so difficult, and you're like, game over, I quit. And that's kind of the phrase, penal substitutionary atonement. If that was your phrase, you'd be like, I quit. But we're going to try this morning. So first word, penal. What does it mean? It means there's a penalty for our sin. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. So the penalty for sin is spiritual death, a separation from God, and a physical death, the cessation of life. There's a penalty to be paid. And when Jesus went to the cross, he did so to pay the penalty for our sin. And when I think about this word, I can't help but think about the word retribution. Retribution. There was a penalty or punishment inflicted on someone uh, because of a wrongful act. And Christ took our retribution. He paid our penalty. So that's the first word. Second word, substitutionary means Jesus took our place on the cross. He was our substitute. He was our proxy. He stood in for us, in our place. On the cross, taking our place, he suffered the punishment and died the death that we should have suffered and died because of our sin. And when I think of this word, I think of replacement. Replacement. 
And Paul talks a little bit about this in Titus 2.11 when he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It tells us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul said Jesus gave himself for us. He was our replacement on the cross. Third word, atonement. It means at one minute, to make one, to make amends. Through our sin, we are separated from God. But by faith in Jesus, who on the cross took our place, paid our penalty, our sin can be pardoned or forgiven. We can be at peace with God again. And when I think about this word, I think of reconciliation. Rebellious sinners can be reconciled or made one with God again through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 18, talks about this when he says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Penile substitutionary atonement is the doctrine that Jesus suffered on behalf of sinners, the punishment and death due to fallen humanity because of the penalty of sin. It's an important doctrine of our faith. It's, an, it's essential for us to understand. Jesus was punished in my place so I can be pardoned at peace with God. And C.J. Mahaney in his book, Living the cross Center Life, shares how he explains this crucial concept to his young son, Chad. And this is what he says. This is what I hold out to my young son as the hope of his life, that Jesus, God's perfect, righteous son, died in his place for his sins. Jesus took all the punishment. Jesus received all the wrath as he hung on the cross. So people like Chad and his sinful daddy could be completely forgiven. It's a pretty amazing way to explain it to a young child. But he was explaining this concept of this great doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. In the death of Jesus Christ, God publicly offered him as the means of salvation who, for everyone who receives him by faith. So when we think about the, mode, the, the, the motive of justification, the method of justification, why, why it happened, I can't help but think of this doctrine. And it's important for us to realize that Jesus replaced me on the cross, receiving my retribution for sin so that by faith I could be reconciled to God. It's important we don't lose sight of that. And finally, Paul goes on and shares the motive of justification here in these verses. And again, in Romans 3, 25, the end, he says, He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunishment, unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 
So as we look at these verses, I think God offered Christ as a sacrifice of atonement for two main reasons we see here in the text. And the first reason is this, to prove that God is just, to show that he is a just God. He, he provided Christ as a sacrifice for sin to prove his justice to everyone. God sent Christ to the cross to provide propitiation, which means the turning away of wrath by an offering or appeasing in the wrath of an offended person. And in the Old Testament, salvation was always through faith in God. But before the cross, animal sacrifices were required. They were commanded by God so the individual could experience the forgiveness of sins. The animal served as a substitute, dying in the place of, of the sinner to cover that sin temporarily, which is why the sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again, because we sin over and over and over again. And these sacrifices also kind of pointed to the coming Christ. We know that the law, you know, you know pointed to one day, it was kind of reveals our sin, and, and, and through the Old Testament, it was talking about there would be a Savior that would come one day and pay the price for all sin. So God lovingly restrained himself for punishing those sins that were covered but never paid for before the cross. And some people say, well, if you're such a just God, why, those people sin, why didn't you punish them for that sin? And here at the cross, once and for all, God paid the price for all sin before the cross and after the cross to prove that he is a just God. That he is a just God, that he is holy, that he is, uh, that he is right. And so we see God offered Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to prove he's a just God. But he also offered the sacrifice of atonement, Christ is a sacrifice of atonement to provide the justification for man, to show he's a loving God. It's where his justice and his love intersect at the cross. God sent Christ to the cross to purchase our redemption. And the price that, that Jesus paid for our deliverance uh, from the penalty of sin, from sin was the shedding of his blood and dying on the cross in our place. We've been talking about justification. He provided Christ so we could be justified, so we could be declared righteous. And so this morning, I just want to take a moment before we come to communion to talk about the greatest comeback of all time. We were lost in our sin, helpless and hopeless. And God loved us so much, he sent Jesus to rescue us, to pay our price, to take our place so our sins could be pardoned and we could be at peace with God. That's the greatest comeback in the most important game, life. That's the most important thing. Now, the book of Romans has a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine. And you might say, well, you know, we're talking about a lot of big words these last few weeks, and, and we'll continue to talk about some big words as we continue on. And uh, So what does that mean to me? Theology isn't just something that we uh, attain in our head, but we need to apply it to our hearts and our lives. And as I was thinking about penal substitutionary atonement, 
Christ taking our place, him being our sacrifice, him paying our price. I was thinking, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that this Super Sunday? How do we respond to that on a daily basis? Because you know what? Every Sunday is a Super Sunday when we get together and we worship our Savior Jesus. And every day that we wake up should be, a, should be an amazing day that we are thankful for the grace and the love that Christ showed us on the cross. So how do we respond to this, this great act of Christ taking our place on the cross? The first thing that we need to do is we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate, and that's what we do here this morning. That's why we, we, we have communion every month, to celebrate the fact that Christ took our place on the cross. He bore our sins so we could be justified through faith, that we were helpless without him. And so we have something to celebrate. And so we need to celebrate the fact that that God loved us enough to provide a way that we could be made right with him. Our sins can be forgiven. Second way that we need to respond is we need to confess. We need to confess. We need to take stock of our life this morning and every day and see and ask God to reveal in our hearts and lives, is there anything that we need to make right with you? And if there is, we need to ask for forgiveness. We need to confess it. We need to make it right. And finally, the last thing, as I think about this great doctrine, on a daily basis, we need to commit. Paul said Christ provided this great ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, and he says we are his ambassadors. We're supposed to take that message of reconciliation to others. We're supposed to be about serving him and living for him. So we need to commit on a daily basis that I'm willing to serve him. I'm willing to, to be who he wants me to be, whether it's at work or at my church or in my neighborhood or in my family. I'm committed to serve him. See, when you really think about this amazing truth that Christ took our place on the cross for our sins so we could be forgiven, we have so much to celebrate. And it should drive us to want to, to make sure that our lives are right with him and confess anything that's in the way and make us recommit fresh and anew to live a life of honor and glory for him. And so as we come to the table this morning, I encourage you, may it be a time of celebration, of confession, and of commitment. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to look into your word briefly this morning. And, and here in this great passage in Romans 3, and just to introduce uh, communion as we're going to continue in worship here in a moment, Lord. I just pray that, uh, Lord, that you would just help us to realize how amazing it is that you loved us so much you took our place on the cross. You paid the penalty for our sins so we could be pardoned and at peace with you. Lord, forgive us when we take that for granted. Forgive us when, when, we've become, when we've been a Christian so long that it's just something that we do and we lose the awe and the, and the overwhelming thankfulness of what the great love that you showed us. And Lord, this morning I pray that as we come to communion, that we would celebrate you, that we would confess anything in our lives that need to be confessed, and that we would commit to following you fresh and anew this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Grab your Bibles and again turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be the end of Romans chapter 3. And here, uh, today we were talking about it's the Super Sunday. It's the Super Bowl. And the Seahawks, they're playing in their second straight uh, Super Bowl game. And um, if you remember the way they got there last year, they were playing the 49ers, who I'm a fan of, so I was very disappointed. And the, and the 49ers were driving to score the winning touchdown, and they threw the pass to the wide receiver, and the Seahawks defensive back, Richard Sherman, deflected the pass to one of his teammates with 22 seconds left. Interception, game over. They punched their tickets to the Super Bowl. Immediately after the game, Aaron Andrews, a sideline reporter for Fox, tracked down Richard Sherman, and and she wanted to ask him about the game, and specifically that last game, that last play. And this is what Richard Sherman said. I'm sure you saw it. He said, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me, Crabtree. Don't you open your mouth about the best, or I'm going to shut it real quick. That video went viral. It was on Ivory Sports Center and, and, and all over social media. And when I saw that, I thought, man, that's a pretty bold and brash statement there. Since he's saying, I'm number one, and elevating his play, especially that last play above all the other plays of his team kind of putting the focus and the attention on himself. And if I'm honest, I really didn't like that interview. But if I'm really honest, I'm just as proud as Richard Sherman is. And I wrestle with the same things that he wrestled with, the idea for uh, to, to boast and to brag, to seek recognition, to seek spotlight. I'm no different. I'm no different than Richard Sherman. I just don't play football quite as well as he does. And as Paul closes out Romans 3, he's addressing this idea of boasting and being number one. And in Romans 3, 27, Paul says, Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires work? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So Paul makes it very clear. He says, no boasting. No boasting. Paul reminded us over and over again in Romans 1 to 3 that we are sinners. And one of the sins that we all struggle with is pride. And the center of sin and the center of pride is what? I. It's I. Pride is the self-worship of myself, the preoccupation of, of myself, and pride's source is self-righteousness, and it keeps us from seeking and serving God. And we saw in Scripture the, the, the people that were the most proud. They were the Pharisees, right? They were going around publicly seeking recognition, publicly trying to get people to realize that they were super spiritual, that they had it all together. They wanted the recognition, And if I'm really honest here with you this morning, I'm kind of like a closet Pharisee. Uh, I may not go around publicly speaking about that I'm better than someone else's, but I have this silent arrogance about me. 
that think that, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. In essence, that my sin doesn't stink. That I have it all together. And I think that's kind of the same way. That's just as bad as this public boasting. It's this, this silent arrogance that we carry around because, in essence, we are, we're boasting to God. We're saying, hey, you know what? I have it all together. I have it all together. I'm all right, God. Solomon, the wisest man living at the time, said this about pride in Proverbs 16. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. In verse 5. In verse 18 there in Proverbs 16, he goes on and says, Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Now, Paul is talking about boastful pride here in Romans 27 in regards to our justification or, or, or being, being righteous. And, and he says we cannot be made right with God through the works of the law, by obeying any kind of law, by doing any kind of good works. It can't make us right with God. We, we can't make ourselves good enough. Our salvation isn't a wage that we earn, but it's a gracious gift of God to us. We don't earn it. We don't earn it, we don't produce it, so we can't boast about attaining it on our own. It was a gift that we receive. God gave it to us, not because we're great people, because we were stinking sinful people that needed rescue. So he provided justification. Mark Deaver said this about pride. Pride indicates ignorance. Pride indicates ignorance. I think there's some truth to that because when we're proud, when we're proud spiritually, we're ignorant of the fact of the sin that we really struggle with in our lives. The lie of self-righteousness tells us that I'm good enough, but the fact that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And we're sinners that need to daily make things right with God because we fall on our face on a daily basis. And thankfully, we have a God who loves us and will forgive us if we confess those sins. Pride indicates ignorance. Pride's about pretending. Humility is about reality. Pride's about pretending we have it all together. Humility is about realizing, you know what? I need God's help. I'm going to pursue the things of him. I need God's help to work in my heart and life and, and give me a desire to want to live for him and not myself. Paul again states that rebellious sinners are made right with God through faith in Jesus there at the end of, um, in verse 28. He says, we're justified by faith. Even though we're sinners, we're justified by faith because of Christ's work on the cross. And the source of our righteousness isn't self. And so Paul says, there is no room for us to brag and boast. There's no room. There's no room to elevate ourselves above anybody else because we have our own problems. We have our own sin problems. Other people may not see it. We may be good at hiding it, but God sees it. And we need to deal with it. The only way to respond to God and be made right with him is through faith in Jesus Christ. And we should be thankful about that. 
We have no reason to boast, but we have so many reasons to be thankful because of justification, the miracle of justification. Paul goes on in verse 29, and he says this, or is, it God, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of, Gentile, of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. So Paul goes on and he says, not only should we not boast, but you know what? God is number one. We'll see probably at the game today, you know, Seahawks fans and, and Patriots fans with those foam number one figures that, you know, waving in the crowd. And here Paul says, God is number one. We have no reason to boast. God is number one. Paul reminds us again that there is only one God and only one way to be justified. And we know the Jews learned this at a very young age. As little kids, they, they memorized Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they were right in there thinking that there is only one true God. But somehow they got messed up in their theology because they believed that this only one true God was only their God. And Paul says God is number one. He, there's only one true God. There's only one way to God. And it's available not just to one group of people, but it's available to everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul again states that you don't have to be Jewish to be justified. The only way to be justified or made right with God is, is available to everyone through faith. No matter if you're Jew or Gentile, justification is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul wraps up this, this great passage in Romans 3, 21 to 31, and he's talking about the miracle of justification, that, that sinner, rebellious sinners can be made right with the holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the method of justification, that he sent his son Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice to go to the cross in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins so we can be pardoned and at peace with God. That's the method of, ju uh, of justification. He says the motive of, he shares the motive of justification to prove that God is just and, to just and to provide justification for man. And then at the end he says, and just remember, just remember, you didn't earn this on your own. It's a gift of God, so don't boast. Don't elevate yourself so much that, that you are the big deal of your life because God is number one. He is the one that uh, should direct our lives. He is the one that provided our salvation. He is the one that we should follow. Tonight at the Super Bowl, there will be a group of fans at the game that will be disappointed. They'll be upset. Their team will have lost. But as believers here this morning... We all have something to celebrate, whether the Patriots win or the Seahawks win or your food was great at your party or, or whatever. We have a reason to celebrate. It's because through faith in Jesus Christ, we are on God's team. We have victory over our sin. He loves us in spite of our pride, in spite of our sin. And he wants to use us. He, he's reconciled himself to us, and he wants to use us as him, his ambassadors of reconciliation. As we think about the great truth here of Romans 3, man, that should lead us to celebrate every day. That should lead us to want to, to deal with the pride in our lives and, and confess the sin that, that maybe we hide. 
And that should lead us to commit our lives on a daily basis to be part of that ministry of reconciliation, to share the good news with other people, to be about God's work. We get the opportunity to be on the winning team. And it's not because of any good thing that we've done. It's because Christ loved us enough to take our place. That is something to celebrate, not only on this Super Sunday, but every day of the year. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to look at Paul's words this morning, and thank you for his faith and his, his desire to, to want to follow you and, and willing to, to live for you. And Lord, we're challenged this morning just about your great love for us, that you provide a way that we could be made right with you, that we're on your team. And Lord, I pray that today we'd be dedicated to be about your business. Lord, that you've given us gifts and abilities and, and you've provided us opportunities in our work environments, in our, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our church to be used by you to be about the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, help us to be found faithful. Help us on a daily basis to be people who celebrate the great victory we have over sin because of Jesus going to the cross. Help us to, uh, to daily examine our lives and confess those things that get in the way of our relationship with you, the sin that so easily entangles us. And Lord, help us to commit fresh and new on a daily basis to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.